we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only the will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty in these times. Well, that was the great Craig Murray at the top of the show, along with um, Anton Karras, the third man. Uh, Craig Murray, that speech was uh, given uh, in December of 2019, just prior to the first leg of the Assange extradition uh, hearing. Uh, so um, we're going to have Craig Murray on for the entire show. Don't go anywhere. Uh, today. Uh, he hasn't given an interview uh, since his uh, conviction and sentencing, and we got him here today. Um, Craig Murray is just simply the best. Now, the other day on BAI, I um, did a tribute to Bill Kunstler, but what I didn't get in, because we didn't have enough time, it's only a 25-minute show on Wednesday, was uh, this speech by William Kunstler, and it's from Disturbing the Universe by Emily and Sarah Kunstler, uh, and it is him after the Chicago 7, Chicago 8 uh, trial and the convictions and contempt and all of that. And he comes out and delivers this speech that really embodies what is happening to Julian Assange and also to Craig Murray. So we're going to play this. It's about show trials, the whole concept of legal. Uh, we'll be right back right after we play this. And that's the terrible myth of organized society that everything that's done through the established system is legal. And that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order to a system. And that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him. And therefore, society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality. I suspect that better men than the world has known, and more of them, have gone to their death through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South, where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature 
of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. There you go. That was Bill Kunstler. Uh, man, he was right on. Uh, so um, our show, which is no longer a Sons Countdown to Freedom for the time being on Saturday nights at 6 p.m., uh, going to be running uh, as I am talking right now, will continue to be on my website, uh, our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com or RandyCredico.com. We will continue doing our show uh, every week. And if you'd like to support us, please do, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. It's a really a low-cost, high-yield operation. We're in it until the very end. All right, so uh, Craig Murray, ex-ambassador uh, to Uzbekistan, uh, an author of many books, uh, Murder in, in Samarkand, uh, and his epic uh, classic, uh, uh, Secunder Burns, The Life of Alexander Burns. And uh, he was in Western Africa. He's a human rights crusader, a great journalist. And, uh, you know, he's a Renaissance man or Enlightenment man of the Scottish Enlightenment. He's right there with those folks. So we're going to be right back with the great Craig Murray after uh, a few uh, moments of Super Tramp's Logical Song. When I was young, it seemed that life was so Is a super tramp, uh, the logical song. I'm Randy Critical, Randy Critical Live on the Fly on 99.5 FM in New York City, WBAI.org, give to WBAI.org. Uh, and uh, also, this is um, Assange Countdown to Freedom, um, which will be on our website at the same time that it will be on WBAI. You can see the video. Uh, this is our last uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom at WBAI. Um, we've been doing it here for on and off for five years, but um, uh, for the past uh, four months, we were filling in for somebody, but we got comfortable in this spot and it's been doing very well internationally. And, uh, you know, the show started back in 2017 and one of the solid bedrocks of this program always generous uh, with his time is the person that I talked about uh, in my preamble, and that is a uh, former ambassador uh, to Uzbekistan, West African diplomat, author, uh, human rights crusader, they got a great uh, blog, uh, and that's Craig Murray. Craig Murray, uh, thank you for joining us on this 
last uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom show. You're appropriate for it because uh, we can't follow you anyway. <laughs> Thank you. And um, it's a great, great honor and privilege to be, to be in the last show of this, you know, what's been an absolutely tremendous series. And when you look back um, at the guests you've brought in uh, to the, the radio station and some of the amazing people you, you've interviewed in this series, I think it's been um, a tremendous piece of broadcasting, a tremendous feat of broadcasting. I think you, you should be congratulated on that. Man. Well, thank you. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And like I said, the show will go on no matter what. And I, I think it's critical that uh, not just this show, this is not about me. This is not about me. This is about Julian Assange. Uh, you've been, even uh, through your own trials and tribulations, have been out there and spent a lot of time in support of uh, Julian. You were just in London in front of Parliament. Uh, you continue, like I said, and you've got your own headaches, personal headaches uh, going on, legal headaches. Uh, what drives you? Uh, is this a case that important to you as it is to me? I know it is, but that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Well, I think there, I think there are two parts to that answer. And the first part is that the you know, the extraordinary legal twisting and, and cheating and, and the refusal to follow important principles of the law and of the United States Constitution in the persecution of, of Julian Assange, the way the state has been behaving, um, needs to be thought whoever was the subject of that, you know, whoever they were doing that to, it's a terrible, terrible thing. The second half, of course, is that they are doing it to Julian Assange, who is a truly remarkable person, a, a truly remarkable human being, a tremendous intellect, a man of fantastic achievements, somebody who exposed to the world <laughs> the dirty side of government, who, who gave people more understanding of, of the way that governments work all over the world and of the the lies and dirty tricks and, and war crimes carried out by governments. Um, you know, Julian Assange made a major breakthrough in the way that the people could understand those who governed them. Uh, and, and so uh, he's somebody who needs to be out there contributing to society. And now we are facing other constraints on uh, freedom of information, on the flow of information. The internet is increasingly regulated. We have the corporate gatekeepers like uh, Facebook and Twitter suppressing um, narratives which disagree with the government-approved narrative. Um, we need a new, we need a second internet revolution to, to, to democratize um, information and, and, and democratize arguments and democratize political life. And, and I think Julian would have, will have, a major role to play uh, in helping that second internet revolution come about. So, so, yeah, I mean, what is happening to him is terrible, whoever it was happening to, and he is a very important human being who, who we need to have back in society and not held for no good reason whatsoever in maximum security. As you said before, I mean, uh, he spent... Uh is uh, like a six month sentence for uh, bail jumping. And you pointed out that there are tens of thousands of people uh, in the UK uh, who uh, they're not chasing around uh, to arrest for violating uh, you know, bail laws. 
And that's really, he's, he's now spent two and a half years. And then of course, the seven years plus that he spent in the, um, in the Ecuadorian embassy, we're talking about 10 years of a man's life altogether. It's just, it's astounding. What Craig, uh, do you think that the powers that be are, are so fearful of when it comes to Julian Assange and his work at WikiLeaks? I think um, the powers that be depend upon the control of information. They wouldn't be in power at all if they weren't in control of a propaganda narrative. It, it, it's, and the threat to their control of a propaganda narrative it strikes at the very roots of their power because if, if the ordinary people understood um, how the world is run, how it's organized, how dishonest those who govern us are, how uh, the resources of the world are, are, are ripped off by a, by a tiny elite who are exploiting the rest of us, you know, um, uh, then this state of affairs wouldn't be allowed to continue. The population are kept quiescent by, uh, by false information. So anybody uh, who threatens a fundamental information revolution as WikiLeaks did is a massive threat to the state uh, and a threat they will never forgive. Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, you and I sat next to each other, actually you sat next to uh, John Shipton uh, at the uh, Belmorish uh, part of this uh, two-prong uh, 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 extradition hearing, which was more of a trial, I think, uh, because they were trying him uh, on these yeah. uh, charges, basically, and saying this is the reason why. And the judge agreed, agreed with that, that second part. He said, okay, we're not going to send him because... Uh, the prison conditions are bad. But then she basically concurred with everything that the state was charging him with. What did you make of that? I found it quite, um, quite astonishing. Um, and uh, we were very lucky to get into that first part of Belmarsh. As you remember, getting in was a, a huge challenge. We had to queue at five in the morning in January uh, uh, in zero oh, degree. February, February. February, yeah. February, zero. Even minus freezing minus temperatures in, in London. It, it, was, um, it was extremely cold and unpleasant. And the, uh, and the conditions of getting into that um, sort of prison camp-like court with all the, you, you know, the, the steel fences and the guards and, and the bulletproof glass and everything. It, 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 was a, it was in itself an act of kind of physical intimidation by the, by the state. And this is a trial which is meant to be open to the public. You know, justice is meant to be public. You know, we weren't doing anything wrong. We, 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 were, <laughs> we were exercising our, our, our legal privilege as members of the public to go and watch a trial. Uh, and we were made to queue for hours in the freezing cold, to stand behind gates and barbed wire, to go through metal detectors and, and only to be end up behind bulletproof glass with, with listening to dodgy speakers where it was very difficult to hear anything that was happening. So that, that gave you the whole atmosphere of the trial. And the things that were fundamentally wrong, I, I mean, the fact that the UK-US extradition treaty states specifically that you cannot be extradited for a political offense. Um, and that the US and UK government said that that doesn't apply because the UK-US extradition treaty had never been passed into UK law. 
But at the same time, they were extraditing him under the treaty that had never been passed into UK law. <laughs> so you know, to argue we can extradite him under the treaty, but at the same time ignore its provisions was a fundamentally weird argument. And that was just the start of all the, you know, all the procedural strangenesses in, in, in that trial. It, it, it really was, and you're right, it should be called a trial because that's effectively what it was. Um, and uh, it, it was very unpleasant to be there. Yeah, it was an unpleasant thing. Obviously, sitting next to John Shipton, seeing um, Stella Morris every day, um, you know, being so close to people who aren't just friends of Julian, but are his, his family, and it, it, it was emotionally devastating for them. That, that made it a, a tougher experience. But it was anyway, you, you know, you felt like you were in the presence of evil when, when you were seeing the security state clamping down on this very vulnerable individual who was plainly in poor health uh, and was suffering terrible degradation the, the whole time uh, in terms of being strip-searched continually, be, being rectally searched, being uh, uh, intimidated, not being allowed to read the to have his trial papers and documents so he wasn't allowed to follow the trial in terms of knowing what was happening not allowed to sit next to his lawyers um it, it, it was a horrible exercise in humiliation we were observing and it was just nasty to be there i apologize that was a long answer well, but, but that's a good answer. I, I i do uh adduce to your uh, observation that the conditions were bad it was uh, five o'clock in the morning uh, that we had to line up. That's after getting back from the Great Harry um, Saloon uh, at two in the morning and coming in with a nasty hangover. But, uh, you know, I was able to pick it up waiting until nine o'clock when the proceedings started. And I, I, I and you're right. I, I, and I took photos. I, 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 you, we'll talk about your contempt charges, but I know what I did was contempt, uh, taking photos. And, but I just had to do it, Craig. You know, when I saw Stella looking and with that anguished face uh, at Julian, who was physically, uh, in, 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 I know mentally, not, not crazy, but just like it, mentally drained. And, and then um, and looking at John and Gabriel sitting to my right uh, in between you uh, and look, I said, well, my God, I, I got to do something with this. I know it's illegal, but why not show that, John? I mean, uh, Craig, why not? And I said that to John the other day, why not show that? Uh, mm -hmm that uh, what, what was going on down there. Uh, I mean, you look, Eichmann, Eichmann, you take a look at the Eichmann trial in, in, in 1961, he was in a similar cage, but he had access to his lawyers that were sitting right in front of him. I mean, to, to, to put him, juxtapose it next to uh, Eichmann in that glass cage uh, back in 1961 is kind of eerie. We're talking about a guy who uh, is responsible for Holocaust rather than a guy who is exposing war crimes and exposing human rights abuses. You yeah, that's true. No, 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 you're right. And I, I actually did some research on this. And I mean, one of the things, uh, Julian, he's not been allowed, the papers from a trial, the documents, he's not allowed them in his prison cell. He's, he's not allowed to, to read you know, what's coming up at court the next day in order to instruct his lawyers. And um, he's given uh, 
30 minutes with his lawyers every two weeks in order to try to you know, give instructions on an incredibly complex trial, uh, which has thousands of pages of documents in it, which he's not given access to. So uh, the, you know, the, some of the worst criminals in history have been given far better conditions than Julian has been given in, in order to be able to, to defend himself. Um, it, it really has been quite remarkable to, to, to witness this kind of charade of a, of a court case that's going on. And as you know, there, there were numerous occasions where um, the defense made an application. Uh, and for example, when the second superseding indictment was sprung on the defense, where um, uh, this guy Forderson in Iceland, and I, I know we'll come on to that, but where after that Belmarsh um, start of the hearing in February, when it was obvious that the, uh, the case wasn't going well for the prosecution, um, they then came up with a whole raft of new charges after the hearing had started and after the opening arguments had been heard. And this is astonishing. You've already made the, you've already had a week of opening arguments for both sides, and then you totally change the arguments with what they call the, the, the charges absolutely new charges, new crimes in what they call the second superseding indictment. Um, and the defense asked for more time uh, to prepare a defense against these new charges, uh, and it was denied. And that was yet another occasion. Whenever the defense made such an application, they argue their case for the application in court, and the prosecution argues against it. And then Judge Bredetzer gives her ruling. Um, and every time that happened, she brought into court a written ruling against the defense, against Assange. And that written ruling was written before she heard the arguments. <laughs> and, and we witnessed that. You and I witnessed that happening back in, I can't remember what were the exact issues then, but it happened two or three times back in that week in Belmarsh, where, where whenever there was a procedural aspect to be decided, um, uh, she would have the ruling already written. And whether it was written by her or written for her uh, is an interesting question. I suspect it was written for her to read out. But she, she always had those rulings, either on paper or on her laptop. Um, and we could see her very plainly from where we were sitting. And she had the rulings before she heard the arguments from the lawyers. And that, um, that to me, really took the whole thing down to you know, a level of farce and theater, because it didn't matter what happened in that court. It made no difference what the lawyers said, because she'd made the rulings before she heard the arguments. Yeah, you know, you, you, you wrote about that in your dispatches at, at uh, uh, craigmurray.org.uk, I believe. That's your website, Craig Murray. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and you can, are those dispatches still up? I know you're, you, you shut down your, um, your website for a while, but are they still archived there? Uh, you, you yeah, no, the, website, uh, the website's back up, and um, the, the only stuff that's been removed is related to, to my own 
court case on another subject completely, but all of the Assange reports are, are back up on my website now. You know, John uh, Shipton and I were talking about this, how you were able to go to that, to and not even take notes, I don't think. Maybe he did take notes in shorthand, but, and then when it was over at five o'clock, you'd have a press conference, you'd have to eat, to get two hours sleep, and by, you know, seven o'clock in the morning or even earlier, you had a 5,000 word dispatch describing in great detail uh, the entire uh, day's proceedings. You did that not only there, but you did it again uh, back in September at the Old Bailey. Uh, where, do you, uh, where do you draw that energy? <laughs> oh, it's very good malt whiskey. Andy. That, that's the answer. It's very good malt whiskey. Uh, Wait a second. Very... You're talking about single malt, or you're talking about a blend? No, no single malt. Uh, Lagavulin mostly I drink, but the, any of the smoky, peaty West Coast or Island whiskies I like from Scotland. But um, no, it was. I mean, to be honest, it was difficult. It, it, it really was quite hard, and. Um, I think the longest of my daily dispatches was 8,000 words um, long, which, you know, as, um, <laughs> as anyone who's written knows, that, that's a lot to produce in one day in any circumstances. And, and to do it as well as sitting eight hours through a court hearing um, is uh, it's just a, it, it's a physical as well as a mental feat. Uh, and certainly in the, in the autumn, hearings where I had to keep up that productivity for about four weeks um, that was tricky and, and I was doing it on maybe three hours sleep a night and writing through the night I, I, I mean I would publish every morning about 7 a.m and that would be having been up all night I, I, I just say the um, I did take notes I, I, I took um, uh, I don't do shorthand, but my, I just write very quickly in, in in my own form of shorthand, if you like, you know, my own abbreviations of things that I understand. Um, and um, I took, I, I mean, I filled three reporters' notebooks. You know, I took voluminous notes, um, and I have a very good memory. Um, and after each day after the hearings we do some brief test statements and interviews and I'd go back to the hotel. I'd grab a bite to eat. Um, so by then it's about 6.30 in the evening. I'd sleep for maybe two to three hours till about 9.30. Then 10 o'clock, having got all my notes and everything in order, I'd start to write it up. And I'd write from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. till 7 a.m. 7 a.m. I would publish. Uh, then I'd have something to eat, go to court and start again. But I mean, I, I was going on on three hours sleep a night, probably maximum uh, during the weekday. I mean, without a copy editor. So you, you had to edit it yourself. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Talking with Craig Murray, uh, you know, uh, human rights crusader, uh, former ambassador to Uzbekistan uh, and the author of one of the great works, uh, biographies, and that is Sikander Burns, which I, you know, I was, in Edinburgh, I met you uh, there personally back in September of 2017. I think I, I bought six books at that great bookstore uh, in your old neighborhood when you gave me that tour. And uh, it really is, if you, you can still get that book and I recommend people get uh, Secunder Burns. It is a, an incredible journey uh, 
and, and it's very uh, similar, uh, Burns to your life, basically, that you were trying to report back. Burns was trying to report back that, that the situation in Kabul was not good and uh, they chose the wrong person uh, to be the leader. I forgot Mohammed Dust or if it was uh, Shah Shuha. I haven't read the book now in two years, but I I'm drifting off to that, Craig, but it is uh, quite an epic. Um, uh, how's it doing, by, by the way? Um, it's done very well. It's it, it sold. Um, it's a, as you know, it's a very serious footnoted history book. So, so it's never going to be a kind of bestseller, but, but it, it sold very successfully. And it's, um, it's interesting because, of course, finally, having the UK and US are finally pulling out pretty well all their forces from Afghanistan this last day or two, having been defeated again. <laughs> That's the, the fourth defeat for the United Kingdom in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, and there's so much you can learn from history. And that book shows you that many of the, the conflicts going on um, were exactly the same conflicts, ethnically based often, and to do with land and resources, which have been going on for hundreds of years. But the side which the British were on was exactly the same side we were on with the same tribal allies we had in 1840 when we first invaded Afghanistan. And not only that, the same families. Uh, I mean, we reinstated Shah Shuja and the first, um, uh, unsuccessfully, and the first president of Afghanistan uh, instated by the British and Americans when they invaded uh, was President Karzai, right. who was from the same royal family as Shah Shuja, uh, and not, not a direct descendant, but a close descendant, um, and, and from exactly the same family in exactly the same tribe in that extremely uh, fractured and disputed society. And the people we were fighting were exactly the same people we'd been fighting, their, their descendants, but, but we'd been the same people we were fighting, we were fighting in the same places <laughs> as we did in 1840. And we lost again, we've just lost again. And, and that nobody pretend that, you know, the United States or the United Kingdom is leaving Afghanistan this last couple of days covered in glory. We're losing after military defeat by the Taliban. We, we, we were defeated just as surely as the United States was defeated in Vietnam. And the people we were fighting are going to be in full control of Afghanistan within a year. You know, uh, Afghanistan, this was a joke I used to say, they're, uh, they're difficult to beat. They're 36 and 0 at home. They're not a good road team, but at home, if you're a betting person, always take Afghanistan at home with the points because you will never lose. That's a, a big parlay. Um, and um, it's it, like I said, it, it's called Secunder Burns and, um, and I highly recommend it. I wanna get back to, uh, there was no Assange back then because I don't think the British press really knew what was going on. I don't think the British press back then uh, they were getting disinformation. Was it from Lord Palmerston? Yeah, I and mean, that's one of the absolutely fascinating things I discovered, that um, Alexander Burns was against the... He ended up leading it because he was ordered to, but he was against and tried to stop the British invasion of Afghanistan. He wrote back all these letters and dispatches from Kabul saying, don't do this. Um, and the government published in the UK 
edited versions of his letters and dispatches in which all the bits that said, do not invade Afghanistan, do not go for regime change, do not displace the existing monarch, um, uh, all those bits were edited out. So they produced <laughs> a selection of his, for public consumption, uh, of his letters and dispatches, which appeared to say we should invade. Uh, and it was all by cunning editing and, and, and doctoring and was all completely deliberate. So back then, governments were doing exactly the same kind of tricks they do now. The extent to which nothing changes is really quite scary. Yeah, they were called blue books, I believe, that were sent blue back. Books. Blue books. I, so that, that book had quite an impression where I can uh, remember some of the detail. Uh, and like I said, there was no Assange back then. Uh, the press had no idea what was going on. I mean, it would take, there was no telegraphs. It would take uh, from Afghanistan to London would take a couple of months to traverse from east to west. I would. Eight, eight months. Uh, if you sent a letter, it took eight months to get there. Wow. That must be, that must have been quite a, a, a postal rate. Um, so uh, let's get back, uh, going back to uh, Julian's case, which you were talking about, we were talking about, uh, you know, people use the term Kafka-esque. And, and I disagree with that because Joseph K. in uh, the trial by Kafka uh, had no idea why he was in a courtroom and on trial. I think Julian, and I think we all know why he is on trial. He's on trial because of what he has done legally, uh, and that is to practice journalism. That got a lot of people uncomfortable. Warlogs, uh, Cablegate, uh, Vault 7. That's the reason why he's on trial. Do you disagree with that? I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he's on trial for exposing war crimes, in, in effect. And I think probably Vault 7, um, more than anything, uh, is what caused the kind of unrelenting hostility to him from the security services. You know, when he is um, uh, putting out essentially the operations manuals of the CIA, uh, then that's something that is going to end you their, their undying enmity. And um, and we shouldn't forget some of the stuff that was in these. Uh, I mean, my my favorite one of all from the Vault 7 revelations is the stuff about how to hack into computers and then leave traces to make it look like the Russians did it. And in particular, how you should leave behind little bits of, of the Russian alphabet, of Cyrillic script. Um, and this is, an, this is a CIA um, uh, training instruction, basically. Um, and uh, But it's, it's extraordinarily circular because you know it comes back to all the all the nonsense of um, the uh, of the Russian hacking allegations from 2016 which was just completely untrue um, and, and the fact that the the kind of things that CrowdStrike claimed they found with no evidence whatsoever that they found anything at all we, we should say CrowdStrike never were able to produce any evidence of hacking and in the end, they eventually admitted there was no evidence of hacking. Um, but those initial claims included things like having found little bits of Cyrillic script left behind by the hackers. I, I mean, it appeared to be um, the exact template of the CIA how to pretend it was a Russian's um, operation. Right. <laughs> exactly. Craig Murray, uh, Craig Murray, um, 
www.org.uk, uh, there's a treasure trove of great uh, articles that you've written over the years, and I uh, recommend people go there. I, you know, with Julian, I spoke to John Pilzer the other day, and I'm sure you would concur with this. Uh, he said that if Julian is extradited to the U.S., it will be the end of freedom. Is, is that hyperbole, or do you subscribe to it? Well, I, I think, you know, there are a great many ways we, we are facing the end of freedom. It will certainly be the death of the First Amendment. I mean, the First Amendment is meaningless. And we must remember that one of the things which um, the American government specifically argued in court was that in the famous um, uh, New York Times case with Daniel Ellsberg uh, and, and his revelations, uh, they argued that that was that Ellsberg was never charged under the Espionage Act, and that there's no First Amendment defense to the Espionage Act. And had Ellsberg been charged under the Espionage Act, he would have been convicted and imprisoned, and everybody at the newspaper would have been sent to uh, sent to prison as well. Um, the, uh, and, and the um, and they said that they said that outright in 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 the court in London last autumn um, that what went wrong with with the Daniel Ellsberg uh, Pentagon Papers was that he was charged under the wrong act. If they charged him under the Espionage Act, he would have been guilty then. So this totally wipes out all First Amendment protection in the United States. In effect, so it says that the Espionage Act trumps the um, the First Amendment and. If they get away with that, that's of course a, a massive blow to uh, to, to press freedom. But jo John Pilton was also talking more more symbolically about um, you know Assange's um, role uh, and what he stands for, uh, and the fact that allowing anybody who's such a great journalist and publisher and has played such a pivotal role um, to be uh, destroyed in effect, um, shows that society no longer cares about freedom. Um, but, 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 you know, in, in the UK this week, this very week in the UK, um, we've had a policing and crime bill passed through Parliament, which essentially says that you can only have a demonstration or a vigil if it's approved at first by the police. Um, and that the police can refuse it on the grounds that it's a public nuisance or or, or, new, or, or inconvenient or will impede passage. And of course, every demonstration has ever been um, impedes passage. If you're not impeding passage, you're, you're, if, if a vehicle can pass straight through the middle of your demonstration, then, then it's not a very good demonstration. Uh, the, <laughs> the, this, this, will, this will give the police the power to just stop any demonstration. Full stop. Um, Wait a uh, second. You're telling me that the demonstration where I saw you speak off the top of your head in front of Parliament on February 22nd, 2020, uh, they could just say no? Yeah, they, they could just say no. Uh, I mean, it, it essentially makes the, the right of the assembly uh, uh, and the right of freedom of speech subject entirely to police regulation. It, in effect, absolutely changes the law in that regard. And the Council of Europe Commissioner on Human Rights has written to the British government to tell them it's illegal. Um, 
But not only that, the same week, we've had the government publish proposals to send asylum seekers to detention camps in Africa to be held uh, pending resolution of their asylum cases. Um, on the grounds that asylum cases seekers have entered the country illegally. Well, of course they have. There's no legal method by which an asylum seeker can, can enter the country. It, is, um, uh, it has been made illegal for anyone to enter with the purpose of claiming asylum. Um, so, uh, and so that again puts us totally at odds of our obligations under the Refugee Convention. But can you imagine, I mean, even even the current governments in the United States wouldn't do that. Can you imagine if they said the solution to the border problems is to, to ship all asylum seekers to Africa to a detention camp? Uh, it, 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 you know, it, um, and John, John Pilger is, is right. I, I, I think we are seeing the destruction of freedoms and it genuinely scares me how few people care. It, it really does. You know, the, the fact that legislation that appalling can be passed um, and people aren't protesting against it, uh, or only a small minority of people are protesting against it. That, that, that worries me enormously. We, we, the, uh, there, there are people who you know, have critiques of Western capitalism, and particularly of its economic consequences. And, and I, I understand those and sympathize with them. But in terms of human freedom and liberty, they were great achievements of Western society. Those seem to be disappearing. The, the if you like, the plus side of Western democracy in, in terms of uh, the individual freedoms and civil liberties it bestows seem to be devalued and be being removed at the same time as the downsides, in, in particular the vast inequalities of wealth, seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. So we're seeing a very dangerous trend in, 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 in so-called Western democracy at the moment. Um, that it, it, Boris Johnson obviously is going to sign that bill and, and that will go into law. What, what has been uh, the response by uh, media, BBC, The Guardian and the Daily Mail uh, you know, ad nauseum? Um, the Guardian has opposed it. Um, uh, they um, uh, they actually had rather good editorial today, and I'm not a fan of the Guardian in general, as you know. But they, they had rather good editorial today, in which they said that this legislation shows that Boris Johnson is not the liberal he pretends to be. He pretends he's a liberal, but he's not really. He's, a, he's not a liberal. He's a libertine, <laughs> and he. He believes in freedom only for one person, which is Boris Johnson. He believes he personally should be exempt from all rules and laws, um, but but he's not actually uh, against directing everybody else in sort of harsh authoritarian ways. Um, so the, the the Guardian has been fairly good. Uh, we're talking with Craig Murray. Craig Murray, um, if you want to see Craig Murray, you can go to the UC Global website because I know you're there. And this is what I want to talk about next here uh, when it comes to Assange is that I thought when, uh, when Stefania Morizzi won her case uh, against uh, the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services and she exposed them for collaborating or pressuring, uh, colluding uh, with uh, Marion Nye and uh, previous um, Swedish prosecutors um, 
to keep that that bogus case alive. When she was able to expose, I thought that would be the end of the affair with Julian Assange. Didn't happen. Then I see the UC Global spying case uh, where they illegally spied on people like yourself and Stella Morris and uh, other attorneys, including me. I'm not an attorney, but I'm saying I was even uh, filmed by them. But I thought after the UC Global uh, scandal exploded, uh, that would uh, be the end of the case. Wasn't to be. Now you got this new uh, revelation of, and I can't think of his name right now, uh, in Iceland, a witness uh, in the espionage case uh, has recanted his testimony. Uh, I would think that would be enough to finish the case. Will it be? Talk about that for a minute, about this uh, witness. Just give me one minute break, Randy. I'll come back in a minute. And All right, we're going to take a musical break. We'll be right back with uh, Craig Murray. All right? We'll be right back with Craig Murray. I got to take a break, too. Uh, Dvorak, uh, humoresque, a little piece of it. Um, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly here on 99.5 FM, uh, also on Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. Uh, uh, we are talking with Craig Murray. I left you with that question, Craig. I let, left it hanging. We had the uh, first thing, uh, the, the uh, CPS, uh, you know, corrupting uh, the Swedish prosecutors. That was uh, unveiled, and then you had the um, the Glo UC Global scandal. And both times, I thought this would be enough to get the judge to say, "All right, we're we're done. We're not giving you back. Uh, we're not giving uh, Julian back to the U.S. based on all of this information." That didn't happen. And now let's talk about the witness uh, in the espionage case. And I can't think of his uh, name. It's a, a long. Uh, he's uh, he's from Iceland. Can you just and. Will this end it? Um, sadly, I don't think um, it will have any major impact on the case. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, the fact that the United States government was spying on Julian's conferences with his defense attorneys uh, would normally, in itself, be enough to stop the extradition. In any court in the world, if a prosecution is spying on the defendant's uh, private conversations with his defense attorneys, any judge in the world is going to dismiss that. Um, but in Julian's case, none of the usual rules apply. Um, and similarly, and the, the extraordinary thing about Siggy Forderson recounting his testimony isn't that he's recounted his testimony. The extraordinary thing is that the FBI ever accepted that testimony and that the United States government ever used that testimony in the first place. Siggy Forgerson. Yeah, there you go. That's the name. Who can pronounce that? I can't. <laughs> well, I, I can pronounce it much better than I can pronounce the name of WikiLeaks editor-in-chief, Kristen 
Schaffensen, which I, 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 I can never say at all. But um, <laughs> that's, it's almost like learning uh, Hungarian, you know, it, it trying really to pronounce is. that name. It's not easy dealing with all these, these lovely Icelandic people, but very hard to say their names. Yeah. Siggy Forderson right. had already been to jail for fraud. He was a convicted fraudster who'd been sent to prison for stealing money from WikiLeaks. And part of what he did was set up fundraisers claiming the money was going to WikiLeaks, but actually just stealing it. And part of what he did for that was he sent letters and emails signing himself as Julian Assange and impersonating Julian Assange. And one of the things he was convicted of, he was convicted of impersonating Julian Assange. He's also on the, on the sex offenders register, having uh, done um, online grooming of young boys uh, under the age of consent. Um, so you have a convicted fraudster um, who's been impersonating Julian Assange uh, and is a child sex offender. And this is the FBI's star witness. You know, that is astonishing. It's, it's ironic because the CIA, uh, the State Department, and uh, the Crown Prosecutor Services and all these uh, different organizations have framed Julian Assange, tried to, on some kind of, of sex charges. The whole thing was bogus. And now the main witness, one of the main witnesses against him is someone who actually did commit sex offenses. Don't you find that ironic? Yeah, it, 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 it's astonishing. And the stuff, and he, he made up for them um, stuff about Julian Assange seeking to hack into Icelandic bank accounts, about Julian Assange seeking to hack the telephones of Icelandic members of parliament. I mean, why would Julian Assange want to do that anyway? But, um, uh, but he, he just came up with all these accusations for the FBI. The FBI um, sent a team of seven people to Iceland to meet him and interview him and get him to go through this. When the Icelandic government found out what was going on, the Icelandic government expelled the FBI team for carrying, because they weren't, they didn't ask permission of the Icelandic government to come to their country and, and, and start this stuff. And the Icelandic government was well aware that they were engaged in the fraudulent, um, in the fraudulent concoction, the invention, the fabrication of accusations. Um, so the, the Icelandic government actually expelled the FBI from Iceland, but they, um, they nonetheless went ahead with um, uh, these charges and these were the extra charges that were added between the Belmarsh Woolwich hearings and the El Bailey hearings. These were the extra charges against Julian in order for them to, to say he wasn't charged with journalism, he was charged with hacking the phones of Icelandic MPs and things. All, all that was just invented by the Siggy Forderson chap. And I, I think in fullness of time, we almost certainly are going to know for sure but Forderson was paid by the FBI to, to do this. Uh, my suspicion is the FBI gave him quite a lot of money to, uh, in order to make these false allegations. Yeah. They have the cover story that it was only 5,000, but there's no way I believe that at all. Uh, you know, you give someone like that a couple hundred thousand dollars that is, uh, you know, uh, dead broke. And, uh, you know, they come up with the lies. And the guy obviously has uh, no moral fiber. Uh, you have a lot of moral fiber. You did this uh, when I saw you um, 
at Balmoris, the last day was uh, February 27th. You were going on the following week to cover the Alex Salmon uh, trial. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that was beginning in March. And uh, and I don't know if it was two-legged or what, if it was just then. I mean, my memory's a, a little shot. But uh, you went there and you covered it. And uh, then you got yourself in Dutch. And it took all of us on this side of the, the pond think it was a reprisal for all of the stuff that you have done, Craig, uh, exposing uh, UK crimes in collaboration with the Uzbeki government, uh, the, the, the bogus uh, Salisbury uh, poisoning of, uh, of the Scripple and many other, you, you've been there, you've, you've shown a light on all of these, uh, you know, uh, bogus um, UK uh, allegations and, uh, you know, uh, the stuff that they've done uh, around the world, uh, and their uh, collusion and the stuff with BAE. I, 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 I thought when they, when they charge you, it, it was really a reprisal for all of that because you pissed off a lot of people in high places. Yeah, I think they've been looking for a way to get me in jail for a long time, to get rid of me and stop my activism and stop my my writing. In particular, you know, I've built an audience um, which, and, and my reports on the Assange trial were being read by five to 10 million people a day around the globe. Um, uh, uh, and that obviously isn't something that they would want to be happening. Um, so yeah, I, th I think plainly I was a target and if they could find a way to jail me. And of course, from my reporting on the Assange trial, they found a way to jail me without a jury, you know, without having a proper trial, just on the say-so of a judge or, or panel of judges. Um, and that's what's happened. I've, I've now been sentenced to jail for eight months um, and we're appealing at the moment. We, we've gone to the Supreme Court uh, and we've requested a patient permission to appeal to the Supreme Court. And that, that's why I'm not sitting in jail at this moment, um, uh, but yeah, is it, it's it imminent. Craig, is 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 it imminent that you actually will go to jail? Uh, I mean, are you exhausting your appeals at the end of this month, July 29th? Yes, it, yeah. The, um, if the Supreme Court refuses to take my appeal, uh, then I will go to jail at the end of this month. In, in, in effect, that's where we are. I will then appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, but I'll have to do that from within prison, in effect. Yeah, I mean, you could be in jail for, you know, a minimum of four months. I hear you usually serve half the sentence. Uh, and, and the European Court may not render its decision until after you've served your time. Uh, is there a way it, that it can be expedited or, or will uh, the, the, the head judge, chief judge, uh, what's her name, Lord... Um, I can't think of her name right now. Uh, it, 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 will she grant you a stay of going to jail until the European court decides? Um, almost certainly not. Um, I, I think that would be unprecedented. Mind you, there's a lot of things in my in my trial which are unprecedented, but they're all against me. I think to get them to do something unprecedented in my favor is extremely unlikely. Uh, no, I mean, I would certainly serve my sentence. Where would it be, Craig? I mean, uh, what, what kind of a minimum security prison, maximum, uh, you know, some kind of a prison farm? Where would they put you? There's no way of telling, really. Um, you know, they, that really is at their discretion. Um, and I mean, there's no reason at all why Julian should be in a maximum security prison, but he is. Um, my suspicion is they would also put me in a maximum security prison and probably into solitary for a while. 
um, purely, you know, as a vindictive punishment of you. Yeah, well, it's just amazing that, uh, that this is actually happening uh, to you, and it must right now. I know that you, you you've been very cool today, and you've been calm and collective, and uh, and uh, but it, it's got to have some kind of psychological toll. The prospect, the imminent prospect of being uh, separated from your newly born kid, who's like I think was born in February. And uh, your son Cameron and, and your wife Madeira. I mean, this has got to be really weighing heavily in your heart. Um, it's extremely unpleasant, and and certainly, if you like, the effect on my family and their unhappiness. Um, ways, I think if I was single, I, I I'd be able to bear it very easily. If it didn't affect anyone except me, it, it really wouldn't worry me too much. And there are very few people who've really gone out to be fighters for freedom and fighters against the establishment who they don't manage to put in jail at some stage where, you know, it almost goes with the territory. Um, and uh, it, so I'm not, it, it's not a massive surprise. Um, I'm, it, it's a kind of persecution you might expect if you're, you know, a, a whistleblower, an exposer of state secrets, uh, which is what I, I try to be. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. I won't pretend it's not difficult, but I'm, I'm less downhearted about it than you might expect. Yeah, well, uh, definitely this is an act of uh, vindictiveness. Um, I, I, I just can't imagine that you will be separated uh, from your family, uh, particularly with a newborn in the situation that you're going to leave them in. Uh, how it couldn't uh, weigh heavily on, on, on your spirit and your soul and, and, and your emotions here. Um, and, and plus, I know you were on uh, back in 2016 in December, you had just gotten out of the hospital and you went through like a, a, a major proceeding back then, a blood transfusion. I don't, I don't want to tell all, but you know, it was like a, a really uh, hellish couple of days, maybe a week, uh, and so let's be honest. I mean, you're not in great health and, and you're, they're going to put someone like you who's not in great health and into a prison rather than you spending it at home under home arrest. It, it, it is quite extraordinary. No, no you're right. I, I mean, my, my cardiac conditions and my pulmonary, my lung conditions are, are serious and untreatable. It, 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 not untreatable, uncurable. You, you can treat them, but you can't. You can't cure them. Um, so, and the um, when you you know, I was convicted of contempt of court for reporting more than the court wished me to report. That's what I was convicted of. Um, and uh, when you're convicted in Scotland, you you get. A social work report, which is a compulsory part of the procedure, which the judge has to consider in determining the sentence. Um, and they have to look at other options like community service, you know, send you to pick up litter or to teach French in the community college or, or whatever. Um, and the, um, the report said I couldn't do any form of community service because I'm too unwell. My, my health wouldn't allow me to, um, uh, to perform community service. Um, and it's quite extraordinary that somebody deemed too ill to perform community service is sent to prison instead. Uh, and that, that really is wow. an example this... of how 
you know, how, how vindictive the state is doing. This is a jigsaw. It's called a jigsawing, but it's a jigsawing case inside of a riddle, inside of a conundrum, because it, I've, I've, I've had um, Mohammed uh, Almazi on the show and, and he laid it out and there's nothing there. This is a big nothing burger. It's all, from my point of view and uh, my learned point of view, and I've dealt with a lot of uh, criminal justice cases, I've never seen anything. Uh, Assange case, yes, uh, but as extraordinary as this uh, case, I, 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 your case, and it's just, I know this is an act of vengeance against you. And uh, I, I don't want the judge to get mad at me, but I think people uh, should recognize it. And uh, Craig has done uh, so much for so many people over the years. And, and they're, they're, do you still have a defense fund, Craig? Uh, yeah, no, the defense fund is still running. And of course, we, we, we need that to, um, uh, uh, to allow us to, to get, if the Supreme Court accepts the appeal in particular, then, you know, that's going to get very expensive. Um, and if not, we have to go to the European Court of Human Rights, get even more expensive. Craig, slowly spell it out how people can access. And, uh, and I, I urge people to support Craig Murray Defense Fund, but uh, how do people access it, Craig? Slowly spell it out for us. Um, essentially, if you go to my, my website, craigmiley.org.uk. Uh, you can find their link on the page to donate. Uh, and that money goes straight into my defense fund. Um, also, you can, uh, you don't have to remember, if, if you remember, just remember my name, Craig Miley, and just Google or whichever search engine you, you use, Craig Miley Defense Fund, it will come, it will come up. And I should say we've had some, I mean, people would be maybe People won't be amazed in, in the United States. Pe pe people in the UK are astonished when I explain to them how expensive it is, you, you know, how the law just isn't available to ordinary people. Um, and we have already spent uh, £180,000, which is about $230,000 on my defence. That's what the lawyers have already been paid that even before we get to the, to the Supreme Court. Um, but we, we've had some amazing help and contributions. Um, the wonderful Roger Waters put in £20,000. Um, Vivian Westwood put in £10,000. We've had that, that, that £180,000 has come from 13,000 different donors, 13,000 donors all around the world. Uh, and that's, um, that's a, you know, a lovely feeling that so many people are prepared to be helpful and support. And the, the smallest donation we've had is less than one dollar. Uh, that was for me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, and, but, when you when you were uh, sued for libel, I did kick in then, and uh, I'm going to set a precedent, uh, <laughs> listeners and viewers on Assange Countdown to Freedom, to please help out uh, Craig Murray's defense fund uh, because you've done so much. And you're going to lose a lot. You're not going to be able to make uh, any money uh, if you go to jail. And it, you're going to put your family in, in, in dire need uh, if you go to jail. So I, I urge people uh, to go to that website, craigmurray.org.uk, and, uh, and help uh, Craig Murray be extricated from this uh, major injustice. This is definitely Kafkaesque. I will say it is Kafkaesque what has happened to you. Yeah, but, but 
just two points I make there, to, to, which is the first one is that we believe I'm the first person to be jailed anywhere in the world ever for jigsaw identification of a protected witness. And jigsaw identification means I didn't name a witness and I didn't myself publish enough information to enable you to identify a witness, but I gave a piece of information which if you put it together with things published by other people would enable you possibly to work out who a witness was. Um, and why it should be me that sent prosecuted, not the people who published the other bits <laughs> is, is a good question. But the second thing is I, I probably would do the whole eight months in jail because you can only get your remission if you admit you're guilty, if you see what I mean. Uh, and I'm not going to accept, you, you know, you have to go through the, the whole, I accept I'm, I'm a very bad person and I repent thing. Uh, and I'm just not going to do that because I, I don't believe I was guilty of any crime at all. I think it's a complete nonsense. Right. Well, listen, you can hear the, uh, the entire um, layout of, of the charges and, and, and the sentencing of Craig Murray folks by going to our website, AssangeCountdownTheFreedom.com. Uh, and there's an interview with uh, uh, Mohammed El-Mazi, and he lays it all out. This is like three or four weeks ago. So go to that, and, 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 and he definitely uh, exposes the flaws in the, uh, I'll say it, the persecution, uh, prosecution, persecution of Craig Murray. Craig, I, I got to tell you, it's, um, we're, we're at the end of this show. I want to thank you for uh, gracing us with your presence uh, for our uh, concluding Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, program. Uh, can you just, in, uh, you know, in conclusion, any last words about the Assange case? Yeah, I think um, it is astonishing that the High Court in London still hasn't decided whether they're accepting the American appeal or not. Uh, and you know, the United States government is appealing against the blocking of his extradition order. And he's still in a maximum security prison while they decide. And they, they've, they've taken five months not yet to decide whether to hear the appeal. And on the 31st of July, the courts will go on holiday until September. Uh, and meantime, he sat there in a maximum security jail. So I, you know, I, I think the, it, it's become intolerable, the extent of the continued persecution of Julian. You know, plainly, the state is just locking him up for no reason now. Uh, and, and it amazes me that there's not more, more outcry about it. Okay, uh, thank you, uh, Craig Murray. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly here on 99.5 FM in New York City. Uh, this is our uh, concluding uh, Assange Countdown uh, to Freedom program for right now, but it will be on our website. So don't worry about it. You can always uh, go to our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com uh, because this case is that important, as is Craig's case. But if you, you want to listen to the show, you can just go on Saturdays at 6 p.m. We will uh, be um, simultaneously at the same time I used to do the show. We'll be on our website, on YouTube and Facebook. And uh, uh, let's, uh, we're going to go out with uh, the guy who gave you uh, 20,000 uh, pounds, uh, Roger Waters singing one of his classic tunes uh, there in uh, London a couple of months back. And we're going to go out that out with that. And um, we'll see you uh, on Wednesdays, folks, at uh, 2.30 p.m. on uh, Live on the Fly on WBAI. Thank you very much. And once again, thank you, uh, Craig Murray. Thank you, Ben.
Thank mm-hmm. you.